Yes, yes. So, and my, I like to say that my, um, that my, uh, you know, that, that what we're doing is tracing the intersection of uh, great ideas, religious ideas and spiritual Can ideas. I interrupt and, you for one uh-huh, second? Sure. Uh, there's just one technical thing. Okay. Can I eliminate so that I don't hear my own voice in the head, through the headphones? Can I do that? I can do that for you. Okay, thank you. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, yes? Yeah, so the intersection of religious ideas and human experience. Um, or, or, and, uh, and so I want to... I mean, I, I, we have a good amount of time, and we have a great luxury of having an hour of non-commercial radio. Oh, um, yes, that's wonderful. Yeah, it's yeah. wonderful. So we get to have a real in-depth conversation, and we will edit it down. Um, but um, we do get to have a true conversation, and I want to talk about your ideas. And, and I also am going to come back, um, you know, in the beginning and, and as we speak to to your experiences, and I want to know a little bit more about you than I can than I can find in <laughs> in some of the interviews I've read. Although you know, clearly that's it's it's how that how that uh, how your life experiences also uh, yes. resonate yes. and, and relate yes. to these great ideas. So yes, okay, that's good, um, good, um, okay. Yeah, that's technical problem solved. You all right you. at that end? Okay. How yes. How are we doing, Mike? Are we? <laughs> My headphones are great. No, I'm not hearing an echo. Okay. Um, so I just turned the fee- I just turned his own voice off into his headphones so he could only hear you. Okay. 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 As long as that. Now, um, another quick question: Are you guys going to go past three o'clock our time? Like, do you need more than an hour and a half? No, we'll we'll stick to ninety minutes. Okay, that's great. fine. Yeah. No, thank you. Okay. There's a hum. Um, they're now they're doing big renovations in these buildings, and I can hear, in, although I'm in the studio, I you can hear, hear in the background a drill. Is that what mm. you hear? Okay. Oh, maybe. Yeah, maybe it. That's... I can do nothing about the drilling. It's a multi-million dollar construction zone we're listening to. And this is pretty minor compared to some of the stuff we have to put up with. Boy, I can hear it too. Um, is that going to come through, do you think? Is that going to be... I know this would be driving Mitch crazy if he's here, but um, <laughs> all right. Well, we'll have to let our perfectionism go if there's nothing we can do about the construction site. No, we actually end up having to put some of this stuff to air. I apologize. I didn't okay. realize it was going to be this loud. Okay. Um, so you've done what you can at that end, too. Boy, it's really yeah, loud, it's isn't it? it's pretty quiet, actually. Maybe when we <laughs> when we speak, it may not be yeah, well, so how t- uh, close is he to his mic? Um, how how close how close are you to your mic? Will that make a difference? Fairly close. Okay. I don't know, don't think it'll make that much. Right. Uh, fairly close already. Okay. Uh, if we get more voice and less background noise, it'll help slightly. But but you don't want to get too close, or you'll be popping and. Singer, she says. All right. Well, I think we should <laughs> just. I think we should just do it. Mm. Okay. Yes. All right. Um. So, um, you were born in Germany. And spent your teenage years in Spain with your father. What, did you have a, a religious upbringing at all? I was brought up as a Catholic, and the first four years at school, elementary school, between the ages of uh, six and ten, I uh, went to a Catholic elementary school and had first communion, and then um, continued going to Sunday church uh, for another 
two or three years or so, and then I lost interest in religion. Okay. Uh, there was never any compulsion about religion because my parents were not religious. My father was the black sheep in the family. He was the only person who was not a strict Catholic. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you look at your childhood, um, do, do you find, though, whether that was in church or not, kind of seeds of your spiritual insights now that were planted then? Um, well, looking back now, I think I can see some early beginnings. Uh, on the whole, I was unhappy as a child. I was unhappy at school. I didn't like the pressure at school. I was unhappy a lot of the time at home because there was a lot of conflict um, between my parents continuously. And the only relief I could find was getting on my bicycle and psych- and it was about a 20-minute bike ride and then I was out of town out in nature, and I remember very frequently getting on my bike and going into nature, and suddenly I became peaceful inside. Mm. And I remember a strange phrase that used to go through my head when I was out in nature, and that phrase was, this will always be here. And I didn't know where that phrase came from. (laughs) And that was a, yes, so that I... I didn't even try to interpret it. It was just a phrase that came into this will always, and it gave me great satisfaction to know that this will always be here. And by this, of course, now I know retrospectively, I meant the natural world. Mm -hmm. And the other to me was the world that I was unhappy in, that was the the human, the man-made world, mm-hmm. <laughs> civilization, or whatever you want to call it. Right. And family life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> A particular yes. microcosm of civilization. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah, and it's really striking. I mean, you, you really, you kind of schooled yourself, didn't you? And then you pursued uh, your studies as an adult and graduate studies. You're, it seems that your life was very cerebral. I mean, you were kind of an embodiment of this Western notion that I think, therefore I am. (laughs) Uh, Yes. Well, the one um, thing I'm grateful for is that my father was a very unconventional person. And when I dropped out of school in Germany at the age of 13 and said, I can't do it anymore, I've refused to go to school anymore. And then he had just moved to Spain and then my mother didn't know what to do with me, so they agreed that I should go and join him in Spain. Mm. When I arrived there, he said, what do you want to do here? Do you want to go to school? I said, no, I don't want to go to school. And he said, fine, don't go to school. <laughs> but study something, choose something. So I said, okay, I'd like to, first of all, of course, I have to learn Spanish. I'd also like to take up English. So he sent me to a, an evening classes in English. Uh, I took classes in Spanish, so I learned Spanish fairly quickly. And then I just started reading the books that I found there at home, some literature, some philosophy. And uh, my life was fairly unstructured for those years. So in that sense, there was there was no compulsion behind my reading. Mm-hmm. I only read what I enjoyed reading. Uh, so it wasn't an academic kind of upbringing. And at that time, um, I was not particularly interested in intellectual things. That started in my early 20s when after I'd moved to England where I got a job. And then I became suddenly very interested in intellectual things. I also started to suffer from depression. And the intellectual 
quest was an attempt to find some kind of meaning also for my life because I believed that the meaning was to be found there somewhere through the intellect. Okay. And it took me quite a few years to realize it wasn't there. You couldn't find it that way. <laughs> you know, you tell this story in A New Earth um, about an experience you had, which was actually a few years before you really had kind of a breakthrough um, and came out of that, where you you experienced a woman talking to herself on the train, right? In the tube train. Yes. Tell yes. that story, kind of caught in her thoughts. And then you you, you came to understand that you were part of this you had some of the same problems yes so she would i would sometimes see her on the train i call it the tube the subway in the morning and she would continuously talk to herself or to an imaginary rather to an imaginary person uh, in a very angry voice or continuously complaining and and then he did this to me and then he sat in ice and then how dare he tell me this so there was, and I, I watched in amazement. Thought, how can anybody be so insane and still apparently have a job? Because she would catch the subway <laughs> every morning. Right? <laughs> and one day, I was sitting opposite her on the subway, and she got off at the same station that I needed to get off to go to the university library. And I said, okay, she seems to be walking the same direction that I need to go in, so I'll just follow her to see where she goes. And I followed her, and we got closer and closer to the university library, and finally realized, oh, my God, she's going to the university. <laughs> <laughs> so she she entered the library building, and I entered behind her, but by the time I got in, she had already got into one of the elevators, and then that suddenly I stopped and thought, how can a person who is so insane be working at the university? That was one thought, because at that time I still thought um, the university was the great temple of knowledge and all the answers, the professors and so on, they had all the answers, and I would eventually find them too. Mm-hmm. But at that moment also, after um, just before going into the library, she had just disappeared in the elevator. I went to the bathroom, uh, I was washing my hands in the bathroom and I thought, um, my God, the, the, her voice, she never stops talking. And I suddenly realized, well, I do that too, except that I don't do it out aloud. Mm. Mm. Uh, and then I thought, I hope I don't end up like her. And somebody next to me looked at me and I suddenly realized in shock that I had actually said these words aloud, just like her. I said, I hope I don't end up like her. (laughs) So so I realized my mind was as incessantly active as hers. Our only difference was that um, my thought, um, the patterns of my thinking was mostly mostly based on um, feeling sorry for myself and it was kind of depressed kind of thinking her patterns were fueled by anger that was the only difference between us and that she was articulating those thought movements out aloud and I was mostly Mm. kept them inside and at that moment I looked at myself and there was a just a brief moment of an inner detachment from or another way one could put it is disidentification from the stream of thinking that what happened inside. I was looking at myself in the bathroom mirror and perhaps through that external looking at myself 
internally what happened, I stepped out of my mind, which is the stream of thinking. And it broke that cycle I, momentarily, didn't it? Yes. Mm-hmm. And there was a great relief at that moment, and I laughed. And I realized <laughs> it's, it's not all that serious. It's only serious if you're stuck in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but that was only a very brief Right. flash of realization but i always remember it because that was it took years before i finally was able to really sh- step out of the stream of thinking and realize there is a place inside me that is far more powerful than the continuous mental noise with which for many, many years, I had been completely identified, just like the, that woman. Mm. So, so what happened to you when you were 29 to finally really jolt you out of that? Well, I was in the depths of depression, and um, when I was not depressed, I, I lived in anxiety about my life and my problems and my future. And one night I woke up, um, in the middle of the night, again feeling this sense of dread that um, I later s- saw it actually dis- described in one of the novels of Jean-Paul Sartre, mm-hmm. a novel called Nausea, and he describes this kind of nausea at existence, and I felt that also, feeling a sense of great dread and fear the entire universe seemed so alien. That was part of the depression, of, or part of the fear. Mm-hmm. Um, so I woke up in that state, and I, a phrase came into my head which said, I can't live with myself any longer. I can't live with myself any longer. And that phrase went around and around in my head a few times, and suddenly... I was able to stand back and look at that phrase, I can't live with myself any longer. And I thought, oh, that is strange. I cannot live with myself. Who am I and who is the self that I cannot live with? Because there must be two of me here, if that phrase is correct. (laughs) There are two of me. And so, and that, that second thought, who am I and who is the self that I cannot live with, that... There was no answer to that that came to me on a conceptual level, but what happened was it stopped the stream of thinking. And I didn't know why this had happened. I, that, it took me several years to understand this process, but at that time I realized I had stepped out. I, there was just a stepping out of the stream of thinking, and I was present there as just the awareness behind the thinking. Mm. And even that I couldn't have said to you said this to you then. Right, right. I didn't know that then. I was the I was there and the me that I couldn't live with actually was the continuous mental noise, the stream of thinking that considered life and that considered myself as a problem. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, so there that was the answer to that question, who am I and who is the self that I cannot live with, the answer came experientially rather than through conceptual thinking. And the answer came experientially by stopping the conceptual thinking. Not that I stopped it as an, through an act of will. It subsided by itself as the awareness arose. And later I realized the, the awareness is I beyond any concept 
a deeper sense of presence or beingness that is the essence of identity. But what did you what do you mean when you say the answer came experientially? How how did that unfold experientially? Well, let's the experience then after that night I woke up in the morning and the first thing I noticed as I opened my eyes and listened that everything seemed much more alive than I was used to the the room that I was in the light coming through the window objects on the table and I looked it was everything was precious and alive at almost as if I was looking at it and listening to it for the first time mm. so I was in a state of kind of amazement wow this is all very beautiful and I, I picked up a pen held it wow, looked looked out of the window the beautiful tree that had always been there but I'd never really seen it then I, I was in London at the time. Then I, I had to take a bus and go into town. And even there, sitting on top of the double-decker bus, everything seemed so peaceful, even the traffic. Hmm. So there was a background of deep peace. Nothing externally changed. But I was looking at everything through this background of a very vibrantly alive peace without knowing why. Mm-hmm. I only understood why years later... At that time, all I knew was, I'm suddenly at peace. How is that possible? It was a wonderful experience, although I had no explanation for it. Later, I saw that phrase in the Bible somewhere, uh, the peace that passes all understanding. Mm, (laughs) That's what happened, because I didn't understand why I was at peace, because externally, nothing had changed. Internally, everything had changed. And what had changed, I realized later, what that was that my thought processes had been reduced by about, I would say, almost 80%. So there was a lot of stillness inside, but I didn't even know that that was stillness. I, to me, it was just peace. <laughs> is, is it also that you, that you sank into your body more, into your... F- it's, I mean, it sounds like you you were having a more sensual, sensory experience of everything as well, even just yes. sitting still in the same room in which you'd That's sat That's right. Times. So part of that was experience, the, the, the sensory experience of the world uh, became uh, much more vibrantly alive, mm-hmm. um, visual, uh, auditory, touching things. Everything was much more alive. Uh, because it was no longer being deadened by the conceptual mind, which really, for most people and for me up till then, act, acted like a, 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 a veil or a screen between myself and external reality. So there was the ability suddenly to look at external the world, external reality, without the screen of continuous compulsive involuntary, conditioned interpretations because mm-hmm. that's a normal way of living in this world is people continuously, through the conditioning of their mind, the mental noise, the compulsive thinking... The monkey they mind continuously is in, mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. monkey mind. They continuously interpret what's happening. They, call, they put labels onto things. The moment they perceive it, they're already labeling it. So, and, yeah. So, yeah. you know, here's yeah. something that's striking to me about your story because I think many people have had... Um, have these breakthroughs. I mean, in like the moment you 
you described a few years earlier where you had this kind of cathartic experience and you saw something momentarily and you were momentarily changed. But you had this transformation. I mean, it's, it sounds like from the story you tell, you were never the same after that day. Um, yes. Why do you think it was that, and you know, maybe this is what we're going to talk about for the next 90 minutes, what you've learned since then, these teachings that you've written about now and bring to many other people. But what was it, that, why was it that, what was it that happened to you that was so complete? Uh, I don't have an answer to that. I know that for most people it does not happen in that way. For most people it's a gradual mm-hmm. process. Uh, in my case, the, the, this, this deep sense of peace never really left me, or the intensity of it can vary according to situations or whatever but basically it's always since then it's always been there either in the background or in the foreground why I don't really know there was perhaps because um, the suffering was so dreadful the psychological suffering that um, it was a dark night of the soul as it's I realized later that m- mm-hmm. many people before this a shift in consciousness happens they go into the depths of depression or despair and so I went into that depth and people who go into the depths the dark night of the soul very often there is a permanent a change that happens when they go that low. That far. Mm-hmm. Yes. Most people don't actually have to go into the the depths of it, of despair. They have their ordinary daily suffering, and that's also enough to eventually bring about a transformation of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, but I have no ultimate answer really why why this, in my case, it was a very dramatic permanent shift and for most people it's a gradual transition mm-hmm. that I realized that later so uh, let's talk about some of um, some of your insights some of your teachings and you know here's just something that strikes me especially as I'm speaking with you um, as a, a bit of a, a bit and at least on the surface of as a contradiction or a paradox that you know what you're describing, about this mental shift or the shift in consciousness is that you were very much alive and in the world and present uh, to everything around you in a way you hadn't been before. And yet at the heart of your thinking, there's also what one might call um, an ambivalence about the world. It's, It's not, you wouldn't call it a wholehearted embrace of the world, at least not the way we might say something like that in a normal conversation. Mm, yes, yes. So talk to me about you know, how you think about the relationship between consciousness and self and what we call the world. The language probably gets in the way here, doesn't it? Uh, yes. It's, uh, of course, we all know the, the Christian expression, uh, being in the world but not of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the world, of course... There are two aspects, one could say, to the world. We mentioned it earlier on. On the one hand, there is the the human-made world, and on the other hand, there is the, the world that is already there, the world of nature, um, the world of the sky, of the trees, of the flower, of the stars, the sun. 
the water. So that is the, the so there's the two dimensions. Um, so let's when we talk of world, okay, let's say. Let's talk for a moment about the man-made world. Okay. There's there's definitely a sense of detachment from all the things that one usually regards as absolutely important in the man-made world, in the so-called my life. Right. And um, even a kind of challenge of the idea of what is normally uh, thought of as absolutely real, <laughs> right? A definitive. Yes. Yes. Um, and um, this is difficult to talk about, and uh, it really is something that, um, to take it out of the conceptual realm, yeah. uh, it's something that everybody perhaps can experience for themselves at any moment because the inner equivalent of the the world is the stream of thinking, the mind, the human mind. So you carry the world inside you as the conditioned structures of your mind. Out, and to step out of that, that is really what is what we mean by not being of the world. It really means not being identified with the world in your mind, the stream of thinking. This is very, uh, very complicated, though, because the world, even the man-made world, is the element of our being and doing. I mean, it is given to us as much as the natural world around us is given to us. Yes, it's we kind of inherit it. Um, we inherit the structures of the human mind and then... We are conditioned, of course, by our environment. However, no matter where you're born, you will be conditioned one way or another. So that's there. And as such, that needs to be accepted. That's, there's nothing you can do about the fact that you have been conditioned and that the human mind works according to certain structures. Now, the important thing is the realization that there is a dimension in every human being that we could call the unconditioned or the timeless. I believe Buddhism sometimes uses that expression, the unconditioned. Mm -hmm. uh, it also uses sometimes the word the unborn, the uncreated, the unconditioned. And But, but this is not... Um, not to be not something to be believed in as an abstract concept to say okay i believe that there is another dimension to life but that doesn't really free you internally from the world the conditioned world that it's something that you need to experience for yourself the fact that there is a dimension within you that frees you from the conditioned world. It doesn't mean that it dissolves the conditioned world, but you're no longer totally in the grip of the conditioned world. And the whole, if you want to call it this teaching that is expressed through my books and the talks and so on, is all about that, finding that dimension or realizing that dimension within you that is the unconditioned 
and timeless. So perhaps your next question is how is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I wanted, I yeah, I yes, I mean, that's, but I wanted to, and you know, what, what one of the things. So this 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 tendency that we this compulsion that we have this this instinct that we have to um to think to analyze to interpret as you say um is yes. tied up with our ego um i mean you, you and and you know you say also you make this distinction i mean this is perhaps another a bit earthier way to 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 be talking about this you know you you talk about that the as you say we accept all of this and even accept that the mind is an incredible incredible organ right Yes. Um, but and yet, you know, this is a phrase in your book. Our very intelligence is tainted by madness. I mean, that's quite yes. a dramatic thought. Yes. If anybody doubts that, I would always recommend to people to pick up a book on history. Any history book will do, but I particularly recommend 20th century history, the century of <laughs> rational thought, of science, of great and enormous progress. And read it as if you didn't know anything about it. It's like somebody coming from another planet arriving here and, okay, let's find out about human history. Read the history of the 20th century and if that is not deeply tainted, if you don't see, I'm not talking to you personally, but generally, <laughs> if you don't see that the human the human mind, because whatever humanity... the externalizes through their behavior, of course, must be based in the human mind. So if we create hell on earth, as we have done to a large extent in the 20th century, where I said in the power of now that 100 million humans had been killed by other other human beings in the 20th century alone, but in fact I later realized the figure is much, much higher. Mm. Some historians have, believe it's about 150 or 160 million that have been murdered, basically, because war is also murder, by other humans. So what humans have done to each other, they have created hell on a planet that potentially is paradise, they created, for many humans in the 20th century, their life became hell on earth. Right. <laughs> and right. so, and the same thing you see throughout history, the enormous amount of suffering that humans have inflicted on each other. The greater amount of suffering uh, has not come to humans through natural disasters that was, or, or diseases. That was a relatively small amount. The far greater amount of human suffering is man-made. And uh, then the same insight that there is a dysfunction or a madness somewhere within that great intelligence. Yes, there mm. is great intelligence there, but it is tainted by madness. I also see that in all the great religions, they start from that realization that there is a fundamental dysfunction in the human mind. Buddha calls it suffering. The normal human condition is one of Dukkha, suffering, mm -hmm. or in Christianity, the it is called sin or original sin, or in Hinduism, it is called delusion, I, delusion, I, delusion. I appreciate also how when you talk about the Christian, um, the, the Christian notion of sin, which you put into that category, that you you go back to the original Greek word hamartia, which which really means to miss the mark. Yes, very. It, yes. So often when we see a word like sin, 
some people who are not Christians, they say, oh, I don't want to hear, that is, that's all. But the, if you look without any preconceptions at the term, especially when you see what the original meaning is, then you see that what it actually points to is a collective dysfunction mm-hmm. in the human mind. So all the great religions saw that there was something <laughs> wrong there somewhere. <laughs> and and <laughs> I think the, <laughs> the point you're making also is that, that, that religious traditions and religious and spiritual teachers in particular, that that was their focus, whereas other, other aspects of human endeavor have had another perhaps focal point, but, but that this diagnosis of the human condition um, has been something that, that religion brought into the world. Yes, and that has been an enormous step forward because before humans were so unconscious, well, the majority of humans still are, but some humans suddenly realized they were able to step out of their internal conditioning and see it as if from the outside for the first time. So, For example, I believe the Buddha's realization was just amazing 2,600 years ago he already saw the human condition so clearly and he was able to explain that and that became the the buddhist teaching but all the all the great the founders of the religions although they probably don't didn't see themselves as founders of religions right. but that's what they became <laughs> mm-hmm. they saw it but at the same time they also saw the possibility of going beyond that of going beyond the madness. So in a way, you could say all the great religions are ways of transcending the inherent madness of the collective human mind. And yet religions are also part of this story of madness and destruction, especially if, as you say, you look at the 20th century, look at the 19th century. The sad paradox is that those... uh, Religions that originally were meant to take humans beyond the madness, they, to a large extent, not totally, but to a very large extent, they themselves became part of the madness. Or again and (laughs) again have become part of that. Yes, and they were incorporated into the insane structures, whereas originally they were meant to take you out of the insane structures of the human mind, what happened was that more and more people got drawn to these religions and interpreted them through the very structures that are insane. <laughs> so, so then, you, yeah. When you you know when you say something like the structures that are insane, I mean, just imagine somebody is very new to these ideas. I mean, give me some some different language for that. Some you know, a a different kind of definition, explanation of it. Well, rather than that, I'd like to just give an example that everybody can find and verify in their own experience. Um, A very essential part of this uh, uh, madness in the structure of the human mind is the tendency, the deep-seated tendency to identify with whatever thought arises in one's mind. And so, for example, when you express an opinion, let's say you're having a conversation with a group of people, you express your opinion or your viewpoint, and somebody else questions it. And suddenly, you are filled with an enormous amount of 
emotion and defensiveness and anger and your voice becomes louder and louder as you defend your opinion or your viewpoint. What has happened? You have identified with the mental position of your mind. You have equated a thought with who you are. That's why I'm not talk, of course, talking to you personally, but to mm -hmm. anybody. Mm -hmm. That's why suddenly you become upset, defensive, and angry when somebody says you are wrong. You are, so why is that? Because your sense of I has become mixed up with a thought. The thought has become I. And this fundamental error is expressed by um, Descartes. I think, therefore I am. It's equate. He didn't know it was an error. He thought it was a truth. So <laughs> he discovered a, the fundamental error, which is equating the I, which is really consciousness itself, which is formless, not with a thought that arises. And then, if you get a bundle of thoughts, for example, a bundle of thoughts about who I am, then that gives you a mental image, a conceptual image of who I am, a me in the head. I call it sometimes me and my story because it's associated with your past, things that have happened, stories that you retell yourself in your head about things that you did, other people did to you, and you're identified with that. And that creates a false sense of self that arises through identification with the mind. And so you can observe that At any time during the day, you can observe it. If you're unhappy with your life, you can look very carefully. What does that mean? You're unhappy with your life. What is your life? Is your life a stream of thoughts in your head? If that's what you think your life is, then yes, you're good. And you identified with that, then yes, you're going to be unhappy because most stories are not very happy ones. <laughs> and so if, you, if your sense of who you are is derived from a story that you tell and retell yourself and others in your head, which is thoughts, then you are, that is part of the dysfunction. And so the, the first step to, realize, to liberation from that is the realization that there is a voice in my head that tells me things that I'm identified with. And when you realize that there are certain thoughts that are repetitive that tell me something about who I am, tell me something about my so-called life, tell me something about who other people are, either individuals or groups of people, all those judgments about myself and others and situations, I, I'm identified with that. And a lot of, can you see that? Yeah, and how, how do you understand what that voice is and where it comes from? You don't. You, all you need to do is see that it's there. But how do you? What is? I mean, you. I'm asking you that. How? How? What is that voice? Where does it come from? In us. It's, it's the human. It's the human mind. It's the past in you. You could say. It's and it's. I'm not saying get rid of it. Mm -hmm. I'm saying realize that it is there. And if you can realize it is there in the moment of it. Pronouncing some kind of judgment, as it usually does, about yourself or other people or a situation, maybe an old thought. If you at that moment you can realize, oh, there it goes. There's another thought, but I'm verbalizing it now. But the realization is an awareness, with which you suddenly become aware 
Yes, there's the voice. And that's the, that is the shift. And this is not something that you can understand conceptually because every concept is part of the inner voice. It is only when you realize that you are none of these concepts and you are none of that, that's the beginning of the new dimension coming into your life that all the ancient teachings already pointed to. So right. here we have, this can only be really understood experientially, but conceptually it will never be satisfying what I'm talking about. <laughs> right. Well, right. And so I'm thinking, you know, and you're right. And it, it is very, especially, there are echoes in many traditions, but it's especially this is the kind of analysis that Buddhism has made. I mean, here are some lines from from A New Earth. You write, just again, illustrating what you're saying. The primary cause of unhappiness is never the situation, but your thoughts about it. Be aware of the thoughts you are thinking. Separate them from the situation, which is always neutral, which is always as it is. Yes. And I, but you know I think one experientially one response to that would be sometimes what is happening is really terrible, right? Is objectively yes. terrible. Yes. But it it is happening. If it's happening at this moment then that's what is. You know you might know it's madness. Uh if you were in a war situation or in a prison camp or whatever, or in many, many other so-called normal situations have a strong element of madness. Mm -hmm. Now, and here again, we come to an, uh, another little possible um, opening in, in the conditioning, which is what I call the importance of the present moment. Uh, if you realize the primacy of the present moment rather than always living in thoughts of past and future and through thoughts of past and future and you find a different relationship with the present moment which after all is all there ever is and for most people this is not something they'd ever truly realized mm -hmm. because most people always live for the next thing. And what is the next thing? It's a thought in your head. The next thing, the, the next moment, the future moment, never exists except as a thought in your head. Hmm. Now, if Because what always, actually happens will also always be different, right? Then yes. It will always be itself and we don't know what that is. Yet. Yes. So... Essentially, future does not exist. And essentially, past does not exist because you cannot experience past or future. This is not something that... I don't want to make a philosophical statement and say there is no past or future. I'm only saying in your first-hand experience of life, all you ever experience is the present moment. And even when you remember the past, you need the now to remember it. You can only remember mm -hmm. it now. Mm -hmm. when, you, when you think about the future, the next moment, that is going to be much better than this one. That's always the assumption. <laughs> when people value the next moment more than they value what is, they're dissatisfied with what is, but they are hoping some other future moment is going to free them from this dissatisfaction. But... The other moment 
because it's only a thought in the head, never actually comes. Because when the so-called future comes, it appears again as the unsatisfying present. (laughs) And so... That here is another realization that can take you out of identification with conceptual thinking, with a stream of compulsive and involuntary thinking. And that is realizing the primary importance in your life of the present moment. And so when you when you realize that you begin to have a different attitude towards the present moment, whereas most people regard the present moment as an obstacle because they have a thought in your head that at some future point it's going to get better, Hmm. I'm going to find fulfillment and satisfaction when this, that or the other happens. There's always something. When you realize, okay, where is my life? Essentially, it's here and now, and it will never not be here and now. <laughs> and, and, and suddenly, <laughs> you pay more attention to this. And how does that change mm, the experience when, in fact, what is happening is is very painful, um, even destructive? I mean, it's the worst case scenario because every moment is not painful and destructive. But but what? How does? How can that truly be liberating, even in those moments? The a large amount of the pain, although I'm not talking about physical pain, but uh, most of the human pain is psychological pain. And if you see that whatever is the case in this moment already is as it is. And when you see that, you come, even if it's unpleasant or so-called bad in one whatever way, it is. You, and if you internally argue with what is, then you are not in inner alignment right. with life. Right. You want to be somewhere else. And actually, if you can accept the, what is, then a different energy arises within you through that acceptance. You have stepped out of the conceptual mind structures through entering the present moment. So present moment is the way out of thousands and thousands of years of conditioning. Uh, it's out of being identified with continuous thinking. So the present moment is which, where Which has had to lies. do with survival also, isn't it, for those thousands and thousands of years, or some of them anyway? Yes, we have cre- there has been this incredible instrument has come into being, which we, is the human mind, thinking. It's an inc- unbelievable instrument, but to some extent we have been come, we've been taken over by the thing that potentially is a great tool, but we have become servants of this tool. We are no longer masters of this tool. It has it possesses us. We don't possess it, hmm. and I believe that's where something has gone wrong, and this is why so many people, because historically we are reaching a very critical point in on this planet, and so many people are realizing that something fundamental needs to change, and the fundamental. dimension is not outside 
it's within each human being. And so there is a great readiness now on uh, the part of many, many people for this inner shift in consciousness. And that's why so many people read these books. I was amazed when The Power of Now came out 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. When I wrote the book, I thought, okay, this will appeal to a few people who have already gone deeply into meditation or whatever. That's what I thought. And then I thought, I suddenly realized many people who have never had read a spiritual book in their lives, they they looked at it and said, wow, I understand now. I understand mm. my life. I And, and I'm, I understand the structure of my unhappiness. Right. <laughs> and you, I understand that it is not necessary. Right. <laughs> and you've now had, what, 26 million people watch the 10-week yes. webinar with Oprah Winfrey and millions of copies of A New Earth, and, and not just your book. I mean, there's an no. explosion. Yes. And you speak about, and I think we can all see many, many indications of that, um, this spiritual energy, uh, you know, and you you are actually saying you, you were writing about a profound shift in planetary consciousness um, that is destined to take place in the human species. Now, you know, one thing that, and I mean, I'm part of this too, right? I have this public radio yes. program about religion <laughs> and spirituality. But here's something that I, and I, I know that, I mean, I hear many people saying these days, these last years, you know, something is changing. There's a shift in consciousness. We're understanding more. We're learning more. And yet, I worry that this is a, a Western, that this is a, a luxurious phenomenon, that this, that this kind of shift in consciousness is only available to those of us who don't have to think about survival, right? You know, because there are many places in the world right now, and this is also part of what's happening on our planet now. I mean, suddenly some of the basic elements of survival, food, uh, are scarce. And yes. yeah, so how do you think about that, that disjunction? Well, there, as long as survival occupies your mind, then there's very little room for anything else and even for unhappiness. Mm. Mm. <laughs> the strange thing is, as long as you're struggling to survive, you don't even have this the energy. The mind doesn't have enough energy. To have what to, we call to, unhappiness. An unhappy me, an unhappy huh. self. Mm. You wouldn't even know what somebody is talking about when they talk about unhappiness because you're struggling to survive. Mm-hmm. But once, once you, there is sufficient, then a different thing comes in. The mind suddenly begins to work in a different way and becomes very problematic. So the fact that now there are still many humans who don't have enough food and so on, this is water, there's a great yeah. Im- water, mm-hmm. there's a great imbalance on the planet, again largely created by the human mind, by the greed of the human mind. And uh, even in third, many third world countries, a lot of the suffering in many third world countries is to do with internal conflict. And uh, so, yes, that is there, but the essence is the transformation of consciousness has to start somewhere on the planet, and then it will affect the rest of the planet. So it's not something that... We, we can't say, okay, we need to 
uh, create perfect conditions on this planet and then hmm. we can go into spirituality in the same way that you cannot say for your own life, I need to sort out my own life first and when I get rid of all these problems that I have or think I have, when I've sorted out my personal life, then I'll be able to really investigate the dimension of the, the spiritual dimension and that doesn't work because <laughs> the very reason why there is a why in your life and, and the collective and the individual are really very much the same mm -hmm. so, so by in your own life if the spiritual dimension does not enter there is no end to your problems <laughs> mm -hmm. so it's it doesn't work if you say okay i need to get a have a good income and a really peaceful place where i can meditate every day and 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 enjoy nice body treatments and i can then i can really tune in and be at peace and mm -hmm. go very mm -hmm. deep mm -hmm. it's not going to work mm -hmm. right <laughs> you're not going to get that. so the the spirituality has come into the so-called unsatisfying reality it has to this is the mo moment to enter it rather than waiting for your life to, to improve it it will never really improve <laughs> me, Unless the spiritual me, dimension comes in. Let me ask you this. I think a, a, a criticism some people have or a wariness of, um, of what's been called New Age spirituality. And I, I actually think, I think we're in a different era now, um, even that, that what might have been called New Age is evolving into something yes. different. You, your yes. work is sometimes associated with that sphere. Um, and I think that there's a concern that it is very... It is, you know, it is uh, engaged in a spiritual quest, and yet it's very individualistic. That it is that it is inward looking, um, and in that way, would diverge from some of the impulses. Uh, you know, in the great traditions, in the major some of the world traditions, like Christianity, Judaism, this this impulse that comes from also from that consciousness or from from faith uh, to repair the world uh, you know a kind of active compassion the agape love of the new testament yes yes um, mm, yes is there a disconnect um, is what you're doing yeah how do you how do you react to that idea uh, no i believe that um, really it's for for every individual to realize within themselves that there is the old consciousness working in them, the structures of their own mind, and there is the possibility of stepping out of that, the shift in consciousness. It's for you to experience, not, not even 100%, but to experience that shift from being identified with the thinking to being the awareness behind the thinking. Once you are, you realize that in essence you are not whatever is in your mind but the awareness behind your mind, then a much greater depth is suddenly active in you. And when you touch that, when you have access to that, but this is, we're still, still using dualistic language because essentially right, it right. is who you are, mm -hmm. when, when you are that then the way in which you interact with other human beings and with the world at large changes. You become a force for good in this world. It's only there where really true compassion and true 
love, which ultimately is not what the ego thinks love is, which says, don't you ever leave me, don't you dare leave me, I need you, or whatever, mm -hmm. some kind of... It's not that, but true compassion, true love, and real, the joy of being alive, they all arise on that level. And it's only then anybody who who embodies this shift in consciousness, and many people are going through it now on the planet, not the majority yet, it's still a minority, but they are, they cannot not have an influence on the world around them. They influence, not, not by wanting to influence, it just happens. So, and, and then many people will be called upon to, to do things in this world, to be active, but it comes from a much more peaceful place within, not from an angry, uh, conflict-ridden state of consciousness. Okay. And, and that there's great, very great power comes through you then, And then it's only those that have gone through the shift or are going through the shift can make a true difference in this world. But the primary thing is not, is not changing the outer world. The primary is going through that change within. And then you cannot not change the outer hmm. once that has happened. Hmm. I think it was, it was, wasn't it Gandhi who said... Uh I can't the, change the world. Yeah, that would. He also said, "I I can't change the world. I can own. I can, but I can change myself." Yes, it's very. And emotional. ultimately, you see that's once you see that you are the world, then you see that's where true change happens. Mm. Uh, so it's not. It's it sometimes looks looked at it from an external viewpoint as if uh, you were preoccupied with yourself but no the normal state of consciousness there you are continuously preoccupied with yourself <laughs> <laughs> right i mean i think what you're saying also and certainly those experiences could be confused i mean someone might imagine that they were very spiritual and yet still very preoccupied with themselves right i mean i think what i hear yes. you saying is that for you a sign and a symptom of a true shift in consciousness would be that one was having a good effect on a different effect on the world around. Yes, a very good um, yardstick or criterion is, um, for example, your relationship with other human beings. Do they become more peaceful? Do they become free of conflict? Are you still contributing to the conflict or does conflict dissolve in your presence? So that always gives you a very good reflection of your inner state. What are your relationships with, especially the people closest to you, the people at work, and so on. That gives you a good reflection of where you are at in your state of consciousness. Yes, you're right. It is easy, even here, it's easy, of course, to for the ego to come in through the back door, as it sometimes happens with people who are drawn to the spiritual dimension, who may even have initial spiritual experiences. And then the ego comes back in a subtle way and creates a new mental image of who I am, where I see myself as a very spiritually evolved, highly evolved person, more evolved than most people, of course. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you, <laughs> and that's why and religious so, leaders can, are also imperfect yes, human beings and can be yes, damaging human beings. Yes. Mm -hmm. So the ego can come back in that way if you ever 
in a subtle way, there can happen that you begin to feel superior to others who, are, who you think are not spiritual. And, of course, there's the ego again in another mm. disguise. <laughs> you know, you have a really interesting analysis of or just an observation about humility and real humility that can arise when people are completely are doing something good in the world and um, completely at home in that uh, and have a, have a true passion um, for their calling. And that in, in some of those cases, um, I mean, humility is one of these words really hard to talk about. It's hard to talk about in American culture. But, but it's, to me, it's very hopeful because you, you, you also name the fact that, that true humility is out there. And I, I think when, when you say that, we all know we've known people like that. Yes, and basically, one could say true humility is not no longer living through a concept of mental concept of who you are, but just being that, right? Just Fully being, being that. that. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. And so, it's not something one can actually cultivate because anything that you cultivate really is a mental concept. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So, if you if you say, "Okay, I'm going to try to cultivate real humility," and it's also really, not a sacrifice in that sense, right? Because no. I think in a Western culture, humility is like debasing yourself, and that's yes. not what you're talking. About. It's, it's really about being fully alive being fully alive and fully fully engaging being in with life in the present moment mm-hmm. which is where life happens mm-hmm. fully responding to the needs of this moment but not rejecting this moment not arguing with this this moment but being open to it which is being open to life mm-hmm. so you are there as a as a conscious presence rather than as a a mind-made entity that wants something from somebody or needs something from somebody or from your situation. And, and that's a wonderful shift to, to be there as simply as the presence for this moment. And is it, I wonder if it's also some aspect of that is that when you are fully alive and fully present, even if in a very powerful way, right? I mean, even if that your presence is powerful, there's something about knowing your place in the scheme of things. I mean, being aware of how complex and large um, everything around you is. Yes, and the vastness of it all. And, and then you don't impose all these concepts on reality anymore you still you can still use mental concepts when they are needed but this the compulsion to continuously interpret whatever you are experiencing at any given moment that is no longer there and there's great freedom in not compulsively interpreting other people situations and so on ultimately the present moment always not not imposing all these judgments that's another word for it which are really all it's all thinking 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 imposing thinking mm-hmm. thinking continuously on the on the world which is so alive and so fresh and new at every moment it's it's all when we impose the th- continuous compulsive thinking on it then we deaden it mm-hmm. we and we become dead to the aliveness of the world. We become dead to the aliveness in others. And so we cannot, we can no longer have empathy for others when we are 
behind a screen of conceptualization through which conceptualization through which we judge others <laughs> and it's a dreadful condition to be in but it's become the normal human condition and so yes the mind is beautiful the ability to think is a great thing but but be free of it when there are many occasions when thinking actually diminishes your the, your aliveness mm. and it does not mean you fall below thinking when you when you are open to the present moment or that you in turn a state your mind of attention right it doesn't yes mm -hmm. it doesn't mean you become semi-conscious or it doesn't mean that it's a thing that happens to you when you have a few drinks right. <laughs> some people when they they take a few drinks just to be free of their mind for mm. a little while mm. so they for a little while they feel a little happier they mm. they 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 have it and then they okay let's have another drink I might feel even more happy mm -hmm. and of course that doesn't work because eventually you become unconscious so drink for example or many drugs do that they take you below thinking to some extent they free you from the compulsive thinking also but it's not the way for humanity to go right. to go back <laughs> to below thinking right. what we are talking about here is a state of alert attention to what is where compulsive thinking no longer operates this means you rise above thinking to a large extent in your life you you're you're alert present the whole thing of zen is really about that zen is a very practical way of taking you beyond compulsive thinking where you can face life without the interference of the mind still being able to use the mind when it's needed but not not being used by it and that's the that is the great freedom well, and that's zen, the possibility yeah. zen is very much a a practical discipline i mean a commitment yes. um and so what what is available to um to someone who's not a practitioner of zen I mean, just start there what because that's because what you're talking about is so simple and it's yes. the hardest thing to transcend yes. our thoughts. Yes, that's because we've it, it it makes life so simple and yet the simplest thing because of our conditioning the simplest thing looks like the hardest thing. Right. right. <laughs> uh, but so it's for everybody really to experience that sometimes in just very small ways in their daily life. Uh I have I I use little I call them little signposts. Uh these are just little pointers as um for example a little phrase like ask yourself throughout the day uh, what kind of a relationship am i having with the present moment <laughs> mm -hmm. and then that takes your attention into your inner space into your emotional field and into your mind mm -hmm. is my mind denying the present moment is there a contraction in my emotional field am i under in a state of stress what is stress stress means <laughs> stress is f normal in our civilization but really basically what it means is you would rather be somewhere else <laughs> mm. Mm. Um, stress mm. means you want to be mm. in the next moment or you want to already to be finished with what you're doing while you're still doing it mm. you'd rather be finished with it or while you're traveling towards some place you'd rather already be there <laughs> okay. but you're not and, and stress is so normal that everybody accepts that okay if 
if you're successful in life, then you must be under stress. Right. <laughs> but I think counterintuitively, I think you're saying you lean in rather than wishing it away. Yes, it's by becoming friendly with the present moment. What's my relationship? Is the present moment my friend or my enemy? Another another little pointer. And that's an, mm-hmm. it's a strange question, but if you look very closely, you find that very often, because of the conditioning of one's mind, you make the present moment into virtually an enemy. Right, right. <laughs> or, 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 just a, or, an, or it becomes an obstacle. For some people, they go through their whole lives regarding the present moment as an obstacle. And you're saying that <laughs> we do have the power, however, whatever is in, whatever's enclosed in that moment, we have the power not to define it as an obstacle, and that's going to change the way we approach it? Yes. The first thing is the realization of what you're doing. In other words, one could say, see the madness in yourself. And that's not a bad thing. It's a great thing because when you see the madness in yourself, that in you which sees the madness or is aware of the madness is not part of it. So seeing that that there's something in you that is dysfunctional, that creates continuous unhappiness, that creates continuous stress, if you see that at work in yourself, through your mind, that is not something to be depressed about. That means you are awakening. Hmm. And that which is awakening is the awareness behind the thinking, hmm. the consciousness behind. I want to talk about your notion of the pain body. Um, and, you know, one way you describe it is the energy field of old but still very much alive emotion that lives in almost every human being. Um, where did you draw this idea from? Was it something you became aware of in yourself? I became aware of it when, for a f- quite a few years, I would see people for uh, counseling sessions every day, and through my work with those people, and through then uh, looking at my own life and the the many years of unhappiness in my own life retrospectively. I understood the structure of unhappiness in my own life by understanding the structure of unhappiness in other people that I was sitting with. There were people who were telling me their sad stories all the time. Mm -hmm. And gradually, and people who had enormous amount of uh, emotional pain carried carried enormous amounts of emotional pain inside them that I observed and I said how can there be so much emotional pain when the the situation that they're in is cannot act, actually justify that much emotional pain right and so I realized that there's something in everybody that is past remnants of past painful emotion and these remnants of past painful emotion uh, from pain, pain, pain that you suffered as a child, perhaps even pain that was passed on from previous generations. I don't want to necessarily talk about mm-hmm. um, uh, um, uh, um, genetic, for right, example, right, pain right. that's passed on genetically and so on. Uh, so everybody carries that, some to greater or lesser degree, emotional pain from the past. You know, so, something that that's a way that's come up in my conversations, and especially with a, a man, a remarkable yoga teacher who um, 
became paraplegic in a car accident when he was 13. And, um, and he talked about one of the things, and he, you know, he, he learned through yoga that he could be whole again and healed, even if that didn't mean that his legs, that he can walk, right? Yes, but yes. one of the things he had to reckon with was what he calls body memory. And I think that's very similar to what you're saying, which is that he had and still has no conscious memory of the events of the accident, which crippled him. But yes. his body was there <laughs> and had yes. stored that memory. And that was something that came out in through the practice of yoga. And then, and then I have also, then after that, spoke with a woman who does um, acupuncture and massage therapy and had been working with women who'd been sexually abused. Mm-hmm. And it was a similar story she told, that there was body memory, that what you would say, the, the pain yes. body, and that that had to be released as well as whatever psychological work um, or thinking work. But, you know, in some ways... So this is in some ways harder than what you're describing about how we can gain control of our thoughts because this uh, is below the conscious level. I mean, this is not even is. something we know. We don't know where it is, and we can't even necessarily name it with words or, no. or get rid of it with words. So what do we yes. do? Um, it, there is a, it, you are right, it is sometimes harder depending on the intensity of your pain body. It may be harder to uh, identify that than to identify your thinking, to to become mm-hmm. aware of your thought movement. But the basic principle is the same, and the basic principle behind it is the you being the awareness rather than being identified with what is happening, either in the mind or in your emotional field. So you're saying so, that when you... Okay, I'll keep going. Yeah. Uh, so the... One way of looking at the emotional, the emotional pain body, and um, it's actually quite close to reality. Although I'm not saying it's this is an absolute truth, it is a way of looking at it, and that is to regard it almost as an entity, an mm-hmm. energy form. This pain in your body, or this pain body, the as you the, say. the old pa- the mm-hmm. old emotional pain as mm-hmm. the the pain body, the accumulation mm-hmm. of old emotional pain. Mm-hmm. So I call it the pain body, and uh, because the way it it, it um, appears in in people, especially uh, periodically, it appears almost as an almost as an independent entity an energy form that lives in people that's that i have observed many times and when that I then was complicates complicates whatever is actually happening it happening complicates in the what moment. is happening yes and it it colors what is happening mm-hmm. it colors what's happening with the old emotion mm-hmm. so when the pain body basically i've observed that the for most people the pain body has has a dormant stage when you hardly know that it's there or you might not feel it at all it's dormant and then it has an active stage when this pain body very much comes to the surface in your life in a relationship or even not in a relationship it might just become into your mind mm. so there are the two stages the dormant stage when you you don't even know it's there possibly and the, periodically, the pain body awakens from its dormant stage. That's the cycle that I observed in many people. And it does that because it needs to feed on more 
emotional pain. <laughs> and uh, when I first realized that, I was quite amazed when I looked at it in people. What that means is when the pain body awakens from its dormant stage, it suddenly looks for more emotional pain because it can only feed on that kind of energy that corresponds to its own energy field. So how and that's do emotional you, pain. How do you banish that or heal it? Um, uh, yes, that's first, of course, you need to know when it uh, arises in you, ah, oh, there's the pain body. That already is the beginning of the being free of it, to recognizing it for what it is rather than completely identifying with the pain that arises. And do you recognize that because you, if you become aware that there's, that you have a degree and an intensity of emotion that is simply not proportionate to... Yes. Very often it's out of proportion to the so-called triggering event. Mm -hmm. And, but you need to be there as the awareness in the moment that it arises. If you, it can, before I carry on about this, let's just talk about two other aspects. Mm -hmm. the, the pain body has basically two ways of feeding on, on uh, further emotional pain. One is through your thinking and one is through other people's reactions. <laughs> so <laughs> if you are sitting alone in a room and the pain body gets awakens from its dormant stage because it needs to to feed a harm experience of pain, what happened is the old emotion, perhaps triggered by one thought in your head about your sad story from the past, the old emotion rises up <gasps> into the into the mind and suddenly your entire thinking becomes extremely negative. It reflects mm -hmm. the emotional energy. So all your thoughts that you're thinking about your life and your life situation and your past and other people is deeply, deeply negative, totally distorted, of course. It's distorted by the pain of the past. So, And then what you are telling yourself in your head, if you're identified with all your thoughts, is this, the deeply, the very deeply, It's very painful story. And this is the pain body is then feeding on your thoughts, on your thinking, because every thought is an, an, an energy formation. Right. So the emotional energy is then feeding on your negative thinking. It loves it. <laughs> If at that moment somebody came into the room and said, why don't you stop your negative thinking? It's making you unhappy. You wouldn't want to stop if you had already become identified with it. Right. You would find a reason Not to stop. It's you kind of an animal energy, then, doesn't it? Yes, it's mm -hmm. it's an it's an addictive thing. Once you've mm -hmm. become taken over by the pain body, you become addicted to pain, emotional pain. Mm -hmm. So it feeds on the one hand on your thinking. On the other hand, if there are people around you at the time when the pain body awakens, and that's the favorite thing, the favorite way of feeding for the pain body. Mm -hmm is to provoke a negative reaction, for example, in your partner. Hmm. Some It could be a little situation, something he or she says or does, and, and you push the buttons in your partner and you amplify something that otherwise would be a relatively insignificant thing, perhaps, and suddenly, you, and you know the pain body has a certain cunning 
intelligence to it. It knows exactly right. what buttons to push in your partner or the person close to you or your family member. And it'll say those things that are most likely to provoke an intense negative reaction. And then it'll feed on the drama. So that's the second way then in which the pain body feeds is the, the drama in relationships. Right. And many couples recognize this truth. They say, oh, yeah, that's true. Every week or every two weeks or every three weeks, we go through our drama <laughs> as if... <laughs> now, do you, now, you're very aware of this. I mean, you, you've also, you were, you led us, you, you've even called you said you had something of a life of a hermit for many years, but you've been in a, a relationship for 10 years. I mean, do you, do you have this drama in your relationship? Uh, no, I don't have drama anymore. You you don't. Uh, no. Because you because <laughs> why? Because how how have you tamed that in yourself? Uh, well, the, the the way to become free of the pain body and it's um, is to be there as the aware presence when it arises in you, so that it can't possess you anymore because when you identify it you are possessed by it when it arises so if there is enough if the awareness in you is strong enough then the pain body cannot take you over it doesn't take over your thinking or uh, control your behavior in your relationships if there's still remnants of old pain in you i, I still occasionally find an emotion arises <gasps> Mm-hmm. And I immediately know there's the emotion. I feel it. So in other words, I become the, the, the space for the emotion. I'm not the emotion. Hmm. I'm the space for the emotion. And I'm not even saying to the emotion, go away, I don't want you. It says, there it is. It's again coming into a friendly relationship with the present moment. Because at this moment, whatever emotion you experience... In the, and this is the way to be, eventually become free of the pain body, is not to say, I don't want to have a pain body or anything like that, just to say, to see that it's there. So it's the same, the awareness that frees you from compulsive thinking is this, the same awareness that eventually frees you from the pain body. Mm. So the key, both to becoming free of unconscious and compulsive thinking and becoming free of identification with the pain body is to be the awareness. And another word for that, and this is where I sometimes use different pointers to help people get in touch with that. Mm -hmm. Another pointer rather than to say awareness is to say, can you be the space for whatever is arising at this moment, which might be an emotion. Can you be the space for that? Can you? Is that when you talk about yes. inner spaciousness? Is this? Yes. Mm-hmm. So you become by accepting this moment internally or externally. You become the space for whatever is arising at this moment, mm-hmm. internally or externally, rather than reacting against the form of this moment. You become the space that's behind the form. Okay. So, and another word for space, of course, is to say formlessness you are the formless right. and you're not the form so you're not the emotion because that's the form that arises the emotional form but when you say yes to the emotion but recognize it 
allow it to be because it already is. It's now. It's here now. So by becoming friendly with that, even an unpleasant emotion, mm -hmm. fear, let's say, mm. there it is. Can I allow this to be there? You better because it is there. Right, 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 right. <laughs> and and then you become deeper, mm. or you rather you realize that you are deeper than the emotion, mm. and that frees you from being controlled by the emotion. And then gradually the pain body weakens because it can't feed anymore on your relationship or on your thinking. Mm. It and now if you have a lot of emotional pain from the past, you may. Always, occasionally, you may always experience from time to time some painful emotion well, it arising. It is part of you. It is yes, whatever. and it's not a problem mm -hmm. because you are the space for that. Mm -hmm. So another little pointer, I always like these little pointers that mm -hmm. can be very helpful, is to ask yourself whatever is happening in your life, externally or internally, to ask yourself, can I be the space for this? Mm. And then you have to say, okay, it is, it already is. Why argue with the isness of life? Because it is. And then if action is required, you will act. You're more likely to do the right thing when the, the foundation for your action is becoming one with what is internally. Mm. Then if that is the foundation for your action, whatever you do, in response, is going to be empowered by the intelligence of life itself because you're open to life, which is now. Otherwise, you will not respond, you will react out of your old conditioning. It is never quite right <laughs> because it's old. So that's the, can I be the space for this? A very helpful little pointer in one's life whether it's an emotion, whether it's the pain body, whether it's a stream of thinking that goes through your mind, that restless thinking, and realize that's what it is, restless thinking, mental noise, mm. and you're the space for that. That's the... That's the and gradually you become more rooted in, in the spaciousness that's within you than... Uh, identified with the forms of your life, the external forms of your life or the inner forms of your life, emotions and so on. Mm. And that's the freedom. And then you can balance your life between the two. There's the, there's the world and there's the that which is deeper than that which is timeless. And essentially, the timeless dimension of consciousness itself, the space the formlessness, what Buddhists call the emptiness. Right. <laughs> but the emptiness is also the, the fullness of life, but not the manifested life. It's the formless one life. Well, it, this is the essence. Yes. And, and so, and I think, you know, we're... Uh, so, th so I think some might say that, 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 this, that this way of being is tilting, you know, giving so much into the emptiness that perhaps you're n not connected with the fullness, the earthiness, the messiness of life. I mean, you said a minute ago, you don't, you don't have drama in your relationship. And I think some people might say, well, if there's no drama, there's no excitement. Now, I have to say, mm, 
I do experience you as having great energy. I mean, I don't know. I know sometimes you speak about enthusiasm as opposed to passion. Mm-hmm. I think somebody might read your vision and say, are we talking about a world where passion disappears? No, I, I have great enthusiasm or passion, whatever word you want to use for this, this teaching, if you want to call it right, that. Right. <laughs> um, so it doesn't mean that your that all those the intensity of life does not disappear. It actually becomes enhanced. Uh, you experience life more intensely, but not in a mad way, not in the egoic intensity that that needs some kind of stimulus to have to to be on a high, which never lasts. <laughs> mm-hmm. But an intensity that comes from a deeper place. For example, I experience. I go for a walk with my dog every day and I experience in a little forest and I experience nature very intensely every day. It's so wonderful to be, and so alive. Everything is so alive. And so to be there is every day it's fresh and new. So this very great intensity. And I remember when I was depressed in my 20s, I had completely lost contact with nature. Mm. As a child, I had it, and then I lost it because my mind was far too active. There was nothing in nature that has anything to do with the problems that my problems that mm. I thought were so important. Right, right. <laughs> and so there is great intensity that comes in. It's, it doesn't mean we lose a balance because our civilization as a whole has completely lost the balance because it's totally identified with the external forms. Mm. And it's you know, totally identified you, with that. Um, you, you write a lot in your book about um, the pressures of fame, and you are now a rich and famous person. You know, and that's also part of our obsession with external appearances and forms. And, you know, has that, has this experience pressed on your um, spiritual insights? Has it presented challenges um. Um, well yes I, every in I believe in this life no matter what situation you encounter every situation will have its own challenges mm. so um, it's never the case that once this or that happens to me I'll be totally fine Ex- internally you're fine already that's the main thing but no situation is going to provide complete fulfillment because there will always be another side to it. I don't enjoy particularly uh, being well known or being recognized in the street or being recognized in restaurants, people looking to see what I'm eating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, particularly since I love actually being invisible, so to speak. I love not to be noticed, to to be in the background. I've always loved that. Um, and now life has given me the opposite as a challenge. <laughs> so what I do is I don't react and I simply say, that's how it is. That's, this is the downside of the great things that are happening. This is what is. I have to surrender to that. And I do. I wear a baseball cap and sometimes dark glasses. Right, right, right. <laughs> and sometimes, nevertheless, people stop me in the street. And this, uh-huh. and the, although I d- try to avoid that, the strange thing is the moment it happens, I, I'm completely there and I welcome it. It's actually wonderful to hear from somebody 
oh, thank you so much. Mm. They thank me personally. I don't feel that I personally have done anything. It's just consciousness has moved through this form, that's all. Mm. And so it's satisfying to say, my life is so much, has so, you've changed my life. They say, I know I haven't changed their life, but I understand what they mean. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> right. And that's very nice. The downside is that people are looking at me and saying, why are you drinking coffee? You shouldn't be drinking coffee. <laughs> <laughs> You're too pure. Yes. <laughs> I, I, we need to finish. I, I think I want to ask you a, a final question. Um, and in all, the re, in all the interviews I've read that other people have done, if you haven't I've seen you ask this, and I'm not sure you really directly address it in your work. You do, you do met, you speak of God sometimes. But, um, I mean, do you, do you believe in God? Or do, do, you, um, do you believe that there is a sense and purpose behind the universe as a whole? Uh, oh, definitely, yes, yes. I use the word God rarely because uh, it's been misused so much by the human mind. It's, it, it, has made, it has made the timeless, eternal, that which cannot be named, that which that the, 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 the most, the vast mystery of life itself has, when you say God, you, you make it into a mental idol. It's a, it becomes a thought form, and then you think you know what you're talking about. But, of course, that's the misuse of the word God. But what ultimately it's, it points to is the essence of who you are and the essence of what everything else is, the, the underlying essence of all life. It's so... Words are so uh, useless when we talk about this. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. why... The beginning of the Tao Te Ching, the ancient Chinese book of wisdom, the first line in the Tao. The Tao, of course, means the the, the great the, the mystery, the the great unmanifested power that is behind all life, which cannot be expressed in words. And so, the first line in the Tao Te Ching is the Tao that can be spoken of is not the true Tao. <laughs> so at the beginning of the book, the book says you can't speak of it, mm-hmm. and then it continues to speak of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's what we've so, done this hour. This hour, exactly. Well. Yes, the the ultimate thing is the the realization of the formless essence of who you are. Because if God has any reality in this world, it cannot be separate from who you are in your essence, and finding that in yourself really. I see as the purpose of human life. And then the external world, the the temporary world, the world of forms also changes as a result of that. But the essence is finding who you are beyond form, Mm. beyond time. Mm. Well, thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed this and I could have kept going um you know something i'd love to talk to you about sometime sometime again if we ever meet is uh, i spent many years in germany and you know Uh you also talk in the book about the pain body as sometimes a collective phenomenon that we also carry the pain of our civilizations and i I mean i have to say you write a lot about china in your book but that's i have to say that that's something not that i had this language for it but you know there is this collective pain in germany 
Oh, yes, I mentioned that in the book, oh, too, do you, I, Germany. Yes, yeah. I, uh, some countries um, have, have more that. heavier collective yes. pain body, and Germany is one of them, and uh, also some Eastern European countries have a very heavy right. collective pain body, uh -huh. yes. Yeah, and that's very um, yes. real and uh, yes. not something that... It's, it's, it's hard, hard enough to be conscious of these things as individuals, and certainly that much more complicated to be collectively aware. Hmm? Yes, Yeah. Okay. Well, Good. thank you so much. Thank you for giving thank me all you. this time. Yeah. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Yeah. So um, perhaps we'll do it again yes. sometime. Yes, I hope yeah. we'll talk again sometime. Yeah. Thank you. Thank bye -bye. you very much. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye-bye.